Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the captainless ship that is Canada throughout the coronavirus pandemic, whether masks help you in fighting the virus, and why a drug dealer apparently violated the coronavirus shutdown. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome everyone to the Andrew Lawton Show here on April 1st, but this is not an April Fool's Day show. Nothing that I'm about to say is a joke that is distinct from the jokes that I would usually tell throughout the course of a show. This is all real. I'm not trying to pull one over on you, and I know that may be very difficult. There is a prankster heart in me at some points, and I know this is just a different time and place in the world (laughs) than perhaps uh, we would normally have for pranks. In fact, Google, which has always done an April Fool's prank or numerous April Fool's pranks has basically put the clamp down on no employees were allowed this year to do an April Fool's prank. So as of this point, Wednesday morning, I have not actually seen any April Fool's pranks except for a friend of mine who uh, woke up and found that his kids had done the old classic of putting chocolate in the toilet or on the toilet seat or something like that, which come to think of it, I don't think I ever did as a child. But if you are, as a child, going to waste a perfectly good chocolate bar for the purposes of uh, comedic fodder or a prank, you are a very strong-willed child, stronger than I was, because if I had access to an expendable chocolate bar, rest assured, I wouldn't have been putting it down the toilet. I mean, maybe they plan to eat it afterwards. Kids are, you know. Uh, But in any case, I appreciate very much you tuning in to Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. And I will put in a bit of a plug, just because things are moving at rapid speed here. If you want to get the show before anyone else does, you can subscribe to the podcast by heading to andrewlawtonshow.com. And if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, all of these other platforms, you'll find the links there. And if there's a, a podcast service you don't see there that you like using for your own podcasting subscriptions, please let me know and we will get it listed. We are customer service oriented here, which was more than we can say for the federal government who right now, it doesn't even seem like anyone is in charge of the federal government. Uh, So Justin Trudeau, as you know, is doing this daily coronavirus briefing where he's getting out at 11.15 Eastern time every day. He's speaking for a bit. He's taking questions from the chosen reporters that are permitted to ask questions. And I think that on the whole, it's good for him to be visible. And I've said this, people have been criticizing me. They say I'm being too generous to them. Well, no, it's that in the course of a crisis, I think we need to have a leader. Now, this is the guy we have. It's not the guy I wanted. It's not the guy most people want. But I want the leadership of Canada to succeed. And the problem here is that we're seeing a lot of mixed messaging. And my big concern now is that there's absolutely no one that seems to be steering the ship here. And I want to open with a clip of Justin Trudeau talking on Tuesday. So this was March 31st, and he was doing his daily briefing. And there was a question from a reporter asking the prime minister to walk people through his decision-making process at the cabinet table. And this was specifically in regard to uh, personal protective equipment, medical gear, stuff that the federal government has access to that needs to be allocated. But there was something very concerning in the answer that I I want you to hear. Let's roll that. Uh, Good morning, Prime Minister. Um, 
you talked about shipments uh, coming in the coming days and uh, the fact that more will be needed, obviously. Uh, so I think what I'd like you to do is can you walk us through your decision-making process around the Cabinet table, how you decide how these scarce medical resources will be allocated in the coming in the near future how precisely in detail do you decide what goes where uh, thank you, Mike, for your question. It's a very good one, and I can tell you uh, that we don't decide around the Cabinet table. Uh, it is not politicians who decide uh, how resources are allocated. Uh, we, uh, we, are, we rely on uh, experts, on uh, medical officials, on coordination between medical uh, officials in all different provinces uh, to make the determination on where things are most needed, uh, and we follow the direct advice of medical medical experts in terms of how to ensure that everyone everywhere has the equipment they need. So, I, I, let, let's go back and hear that relevant three seconds of this. We don't decide around the cabinet table. Uh, it is not politicians who decide uh, how resources are allocated. We don't make decisions. Politicians aren't the ones making the decisions. Well, you know, that may be a line that sounds good. It may be a line that tests well and polls well. But the fact of the matter is, whatever jokes people may tell about politicians, politicians are the ones elected to make decisions. They're the ones elected to steer the ship, to run the show, to see Canada through through that crisis. So it's not a selling point when the Prime Minister of Canada, who, whether you voted for him or not, is your Prime Minister too, for him to say, oh, we're, we're not making decisions, we're just deferring to experts. Because the thing is, you can't vote out those experts. You don't even know who a lot of those experts are. He's deferring to faceless bureaucrats in a back room and trying to absolve himself and his government of any responsibility for anything that's happened up until this point. And if the you-know-what hits the fan, he'll say, well, we were, we were just following the experts. We were just listening to the experts. And by the way, if you want to look at the batting average of experts, just look at the serialization of news coverage going back to January when, oh, this is no big deal. Experts say this is going to pass. And then February where experts say this. And then March when experts say this. And now we're in April and experts are going to be saying something completely different. Now, this is not to say that we expect everyone to get it right, but you need to have someone that is taking control, someone that is being a leader, and someone that is prepared to take accountability over that leadership. Because this is not the first time Justin Trudeau has used this line of thinking when he's talking about this crisis. Remember a couple of weeks ago, which may have felt like a couple of years ago, when the travel ban went into place after the Liberals had been saying for days and for you know the week or two prior that, oh, travel bans don't work, border closures don't work. And uh, Trudeau said very clearly, well, you know, we were just following the experts and the experts have said this is something we need to do now. So even then he was saying that he's not the one taking leadership. He's not the one making decisions. He's deferring to experts. And again, I don't want to denigrate experts because there are smart people that are not partisans that work in government, whether it's federal, provincial, municipal, other countries. It's not about that. It's that politicians are elected to lead, which means listening to the experts. It means taking counsel from experts. It means taking counsel from a broad range of people and ensuring that things you don't know you are brought up to speed on. But the experts are not the ones running the show here. And right now, I don't think anyone's steering this ship. 
And the reason it's so concerning when Trudeau is deferring to these people, that, again, unnamed, they're, they're faceless, is because we're not exactly getting clear direction from some of these experts. And I, I want to focus on Dr. Teresa Tam, who's become an overnight celebrity. This is not a woman Canadians knew a couple of weeks ago, and now she's getting as much FaceTime on TV as Justin Trudeau is. And Dr. Teresa Tam, who again is one of these experts. She's not a politician. She has a role in shaping public policy to some extent, but uh, her role is public health and, and telling the government, yes, this is from a public health perspective what we think should happen. It's important to know the public health has never ever, ever been uh, intended to trump the lawful authority of lawmakers, of politicians, because oftentimes public health agencies, especially at the local level, are unconcerned with economics, they're unconcerned with fiscal policy, they're unconcerned with constitutional issues, and there's a reason that we don't allow public health officials to make decisions uh, on their own in a vacuum, and that's because a lot of the time they don't care about the things that politicians and leaders and governments have to care about. And that's not a slight at Dr. Tam. Uh, there are certainly a couple of local health unit uh, medical officers of health that I could point to uh, in various communities across Canada. And we've seen politicians, or sorry, we've seen public health doctors weigh in on gun control in the past, on universal basic income, on other things like that. So there's a reason that we don't give these people carte blanche the way that Justin Trudeau is doing. But sometimes things happen that reinforce the idea that maybe, just maybe, we're not even getting purely health-driven advice and purely health-driven uh, responsiveness from these people. And I want to talk about masks, which in the last few days have become really the great frontier of political policy and health debate, not just in Canada, and uh, but around the world and specifically in the US. And we talked about masks a bit on Monday. But masks are now a huge problem, not just because of supply issues and shortages that we're seeing and the inability for hospitals to get them in in the volume that they need, but we're seeing a very divided lines on whether it's appropriate for someone like me, who's not a healthcare worker, to wear a mask if I just go out to the grocery store. And for the longest time, and you can see a, a bunch of news stories about this, uh, public health in Canada and Ontario and other provinces in Canada are saying, we do not recommend masks for people that aren't healthcare workers or for people who don't have coronavirus. They're saying that the virus is something that the mask will keep in, but it won't keep it out. This has been the advice they've been giving. Now, there's something that doesn't quite sit right with that in a lot of people, but you know what? Being good law-abiding Canadians, everyone just goes along with it. Well, now you have the CDC reevaluating its position on this and the CDC is actually considering making a recommendation that people should wear masks in the public health experts are revisiting there's that word again experts revisiting the question uh, the CDC is uh, considering so they haven't changed it yet but considering that uh, it may help prevention and making that recommendation that if you go out you should wear a mask now it's not to say that this issue won't have uh, supply related 
spin-off effects that are negative. Because if the CDC says, oh, you've got to get a mask to go out in public or you should have a mask, everyone's going to buy them up and suppliers are going to have trouble diverting them solely to the front lines where they're needed more than they're needed for someone like me that is going to the grocery store once a week. But if it is a supply issue and not a health issue, own up to that. I want to play a clip of Dr. Teresa Tam, who seems unable to give a clear answer when asked the question very straightforward in a very straightforward way. Here's what happened. This is from Monday after I had recorded the show, but I, I thought it was worthwhile sharing today. There's two separate reasons. I think for sure, absolutely, we want to protect our frontline healthcare workers and uh, prioritizing supply in that setting is critically important and we're looking at all sorts of different avenues to procure uh, for the public um, i think the um, current um, scientific evidence we are continuing to evaluate of course we can be flexible if if we find any new evidence but i think the scientific evidence is that if you are sick then put on a mask to prevent those droplets from flying, you know, in any space as you're perhaps going to a clinic or having to move yourself um, around the community uh, for essential needs. Um, putting a mask on a asymptomatic person um, is not beneficial, obviously, if you're not infected. If you're a close contact of a case and uh, under certain circumstances, uh, especially, you'll be also be in self-isolation, by the way, if you're close contact of a case, um, and you also need to move for any essential reason. That's uh, perhaps another um, um, situation. Um, what we worry about is actually the potential um, negative aspects of wearing masks, where people are not protecting their eyes, or you know other aspects of where the virus could enter your your um, your body, and that gives you a false sense of uh, confidence. But also, uh, it increases the touching of your face. If you think about it, if you've got a mask around your face, sometimes you can't help it because you're just touching parts of your face. The other thing is the outside of the mask could be contaminated as well. So the key is hand washing, absolutely for sure. I very generously called that a verbal pretzel, which someone said on Twitter they hope catches on. I kind of like that. I don't know if anyone else has used that before, but certainly I like it. So what it sounds like she's trying to do is just avoid saying, yes, a mask could help. And Michelle Rempel had tweeted about this. She said, listen, if it's all about flattening the curve and lowering what they call the r naught, which is the number of people that someone with coronavirus will infect with the coronavirus, if the goal is just to lower that as much as possible, why wouldn't we, do, we be doing anything, even if it just gives us a, a marginal improvement, especially if the cost is minimal? This doesn't cost more than, you know, a couple of bucks to get a mask on. It doesn't cost uh, government resources. It doesn't cost that much to do. It's just a matter of having the supply there, putting a mask on, and that could help someone, which could help many more people. And I think that's a valid question. And it sounds like uh, what Dr. Tam is saying here is that they're concerned about the supply issue if 36 million Canadians decide to go out and buy masks, buy multiple masks, because they aren't, uh, I, I think you can get a bit more than one use out of them, but certainly they aren't meant to be just reusable over and over again. And her, her arguments about, you know, how a mask could have virus on the outside, I think is valid. But if it has virus on the outside, that means that were you not wearing the mask, that would have been on your face, in your mouth, in your nose. So she makes the point. 
that a lot of people who are proponents of wearing masks have been trying to make, which is that, yeah, this mask will help you just a little bit. It doesn't mean that it's going to, you know, give you a false sense of, or shouldn't give you a false sense of security, but it will give you more security than just walking around barefaced if you incorporate all of those other things like hand washing, not fidgeting with the mask, not touching your face excessively, all of that. It's not meant to be a cure-all, it's not a panacea, but it is something that could help. And it seems like she's unable to give a clear answer because she knows it would help. She knows it would. So when Justin Trudeau says we're listening to the experts and doing whatever they say, those experts include Dr. Tam, who I, I have respect for. I have respect for this woman. She's very smart. I think she's been a very steady hand. She's communicated things generally very clearly. But let's also be realistic in looking that she's not always been the most accurate in her predictions throughout the course of this since January. I mean, if you look at some of the responsiveness that she has given going back to, I forget the first date of it, but going back to, I think it was early January or late January, she says that the virus uh, can cross borders. You need to do a multi-layer response. The focus needs to be on China. Then a few days later, She's reminding people that travel restrictions are inappropriate. And then a little while after that, she's saying we need to shut down the borders, restrict travel, quarantine people. And now she's uh, wavering on masks. So we need to look at the trajectory of this virus and say that it hasn't been in alignment with the trajectory that the experts predicted it would take back in January when this started to uh, expand outside of China. And we started to see spread in places outside of China, including in Canada. So you look at other countries that have handled this virus incredibly well, like South Korea, Singapore, Japan. I think Taiwan is in this boat as well as far as the masks, but I'm not sure. But certainly South Korea, Singapore, and Japan, they advised everyone to use masks. Singapore and Japan actually distributed masks to residents. And you look at their numbers, and it's not that the masks are solely responsible for the relatively strong showing, but they are a part of a strategy that worked. And I think that we should be looking at other countries that have managed to kick this better than it seems like Canada is. And the other aspect of what Dr. Tam said about masks that I think is a bit concerning here is that if you're not wearing, if you don't have symptoms, you shouldn't be wearing it because now we're learning a bit more about asymptomatic transmission and asymptomatic infection. And another uh, statement from the CDC director that I think really shakes up a lot of the uh, issues or the things that we think we know about COVID-19, uh, the CDC director said, according to a New York Times article, that as many as 25% of people infected with the coronavirus may not show symptoms. So this means that uh, people that are thinking they're fine, that don't feel sick, they don't have a cold, they don't have a fever, they don't have a cough, are in fact potentially carrying COVID-19. They're walking around, they're infecting other people. So to say that if you don't have symptoms, you don't need to wear a mask is not even keeping with what the latest research is saying about who can be transmitting this and who is transmitting this and who is actually infected. Now, it's important to note that this is just one study and we're seeing the rapid expansion of the field of research on this and in some cases, very contradictory findings. So it could be that this is reversed in a few days or reversed in a week, 
But generally speaking, if the CDC says something, it's worth listening to because even Canadian public health agencies are oftentimes deferring to what the CDC is saying. So as far as, you know, like lining up and saying, what are the experts saying? CDC's experts seem to be better than a lot of the other experts that governments call on. So this is not me saying that everyone needs to get on a mask. I'm still going out to the grocery store mask free and I'm fine with that. I feel comfortable with that. But I don't think we should be denigrating those who do feel like that added comfort is important. And if someone is out walking around in the world and they feel like, hey, you know what, maybe if this gives me even like a 3% better chance at not getting COVID-19, it seems like a gamble worth taking when the cost of it is just a little bit of an itchy face and, you know, the couple of dollars that I have to spend on the mask. This doesn't seem unreasonable. And I'm expecting the Canadian health answer to change because apparently for the Canadian government, public health recommendations are changing every three days and no one's supposed to question why. And Trudeau, because he has absolved himself of the decision-making responsibility, he's abrogated his duty, he's just able to say, oh, no, well, the health, the health advice changed. I'm, I'm not a doctor, they're doctors. They said to do this and I'm going to do this. And I think the most powerful position in the world right now would be to be Justin Trudeau's personal physician. Because it sounds like you could get Justin Trudeau just to like run out on Torito Street wearing no pants if you convinced him that it was in his medical interest to do so. Because after all, he's just not challenging anything that he's told. He's not challenging any of the medical advice, scientific advice, policy advice coming from doctors and scientists. He's just, oh, well, you said it and I do it. So he's not a prime minister right now. He is a jukebox. Justin Trudeau is the jukebox prime minister. You put a quarter in, you get a song. You put a quarter in, you get a song. That's it. There's no questioning it. There's no response. There's no, hmm, I don't want to play that song. There's no, hmm, are you sure you want to listen to Mamma Mia 17 times in a row? To which the answer is always yes, by the way. He's just responding with whatever he's asked to do and told to do. Now, yeah, he's the loyal foot soldier of the bureaucracy right now, but for a country that needs leadership, deserves leadership, and a public health crisis that warrants leadership, this is not what we voted for. This is not what we voted for. So for Justin Trudeau to say, we just listen to the experts, whatever they say, we do. He is not giving Canadians confidence. If anything, he's showing that while he's in isolation, he's just on some Netflix binge, he's watching Tiger King, maybe he's waiting for the new Money Heist season to come out in a couple of days, but he's just emerging like the groundhog every day for his 11.15 a.m., do I see my shadow briefing, and then going back in, while all of these other people you've never heard of are making decisions that impact your health, that impact your life, your pocketbook, your work, and your rights. And we're just supposed to be grateful because, oh, well, he's listening to the experts. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. You know, just as they say politics makes for strange bedfellows, coronavirus makes for some strange stories. This one I just absolutely adore. A, it comes courtesy of Adrian Humphreys in the National Post from Hamilton, Ontario. Hamilton police arrest an alleged drug dealer for violating shutdown of non-essential business. Is that just not like the headline of the year right there? 
The response of this story comes from a 29-year-old man who was charged with drug trafficking and proceeds of crime charges, but while Hamilton police were busting him for allegedly dealing drugs in the Hamilton region near McMaster University, they also slapped down a fine for violating the provincial shutdown of non-essential business. So if he were illegally selling uh, masks, he would be fine. If he were illegally selling uh, pharmaceuticals, because pharmacies are allowed, uh, he would have been fine. But for selling drugs, uh, he's unfortunately been charged with uh, with non-essential business, which is actually funny because the government has carved out an exemption in the mandatory shutdown, which is in effect in Ontario and I think pretty much all other provinces. But they've carved out an exemption for liquor stores, beer stores, and cannabis stores. And the rationale being that anyone who's addicted to something, it would be dangerous for them to be off cold turkey. So that steady supply is important. So he actually, I think, has an argument in defense. I mean, he still has to admit to the drug trafficking stuff, but he has an argument that, oh, well, actually, I thought that uh, serving addicts was an essential business. So if he can say that all of his people would have been in jeopardy if they didn't keep buying from him, he might actually have a solid defense here. But in any case, that was probably like my favorite uh, coronavirus headline. I think it is actually, of all the ones that I've read, probably my favorite uh, coronavirus headline. So that is completely fine uh, that uh, police are still, as they go after drug dealers, ensuring that they're keeping the emergency orders uh, at, at hand there. You know, the other aspect of this that's interesting, and if you watch True North Update, Candace and I on Tuesday this week had a, a bit of a back and forth on this, whether suspending jail and prison sentences is a good idea when COVID-19 outbreaks are feared in prisons and jails. And in Ontario, a couple of weeks ago, the government moved to uh, make it so that anyone who serves a sentence on weekends can serve it from home. They further allowed release of early release of nonviolent offenders, people that were nearing the end of their sentence anyway, especially because jails are overcrowded in Ontario. And now prisons in Canada, which are a different animal because they have a lot of violent offenders, are seeing COVID-19 outbreaks as well. And the big problem with this is that we are looking at a country that still has, I think, a very firm grasp on the importance of making people pay for their crimes. I think people still want that. But at the same time, you also have to look at public health. And and I'm not a big believer in having to stack up rights against each other. I, I think that true rights are not in conflict with one another. Where it gets murkier is when we invent rights or, or when we do something that's not strictly a, a rights issue. So right now, the government is, uh, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair says, asking the Federal Prison Service and the Parole Board to look at early release for some offenders to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in prisons. So the government is trying to basically see if there's anyone they can get rid of just to ease the burden in the prison system. And this is not talking about letting Paul Bernardo out uh, because, you know what, he might get COVID-19. It's talking about people that, you know, maybe they only have two, three, four months left, but they're people that were designated for release in the first place. And I think that 
as a matter of practicality, there is nothing wrong with this. It really sucks if you're a guy that served a, a 10-year sentence that ended three months ago versus you're a guy that's serving a, a you know, a 10-year sentence now uh, and, you know, he had to serve the full thing and, and you didn't. If you're a Christian, it's like the laborers in the vineyard parable, though, of, you know, just not, not everyone gets an equal outcome, but you can't really complain as long as what you had was what you were sold. But at the same time, I'm looking at this and I'm also very much aware that there are cases where people who are violent offenders are released because they've served their sentence and the government still has no mechanism to keep them behind bars. And I fear that this system, if it, rev if it results in something, this system is going to do more of that in, in that it will send out people that are violent offenders, that are at a high risk to reoffend, but have still served their sentence. And this is a sentencing problem. It's a court's problem. But it's a court's problem that the government may now invite more violence from and more risk from here. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that it won't go down that road. But I'm very aware of the possibility that it will, because you see all the time. And, you know, I used to get local police releases in my city, and you'd get not, not so infrequently a press release from the police that said, hey, just warning people that a violent uh, offender has just been released into the community. And you're like, wait, what? And this was happening not infrequently in communities across the country, because if someone is sentenced to 10 years and they're at a high risk to reoffend and they've served no remorse, even if they're not paroled and they don't get out on good behavior, that 10 years will still elapse. And some people reform, some people are ready to go out and rebuild their life, others aren't. So when the federal prison system is talking about early release for COVID-19, yes, in principle, I think it's a good idea if you have a very specific type of candidate but we're looking at the prison system where everyone who's there has been sentenced to more than two years. You have a lot of violent offenders. You have a lot of organized crime connections. You have a lot of these issues that are not exactly recipes for, all right, well, you know, we'll just let you out and, and hope for the best. So that's my, my big concern there. And who knows, maybe the uh, Hamilton uh, drug dealer will, uh, will get, out on, uh, get out on good behavior. Maybe he won't even get to go to jail because they're uh, putting, uh, putting a bit of a barrier in place so that they don't increase the prison population. In any case, uh, you know, I'm looking at some of the emails that I've gotten, and, and I spoke on Monday's show about my own paranoia, and I, I try to bear my soul for you and tell you what I'm going through, and then I get a bunch of uh, <laughs> a bunch of very critical response. Let me tell you, for the record, when I say I dove into the bushes to avoid someone that was walking towards me, I don't mean I dove. I mean I I jumped into the bushes, which maybe isn't even all that better. But <laughs> I, I did share that because, again, the point that I'm trying to make here is that if everyone is supposed to play by the same rules and everyone is supposed to adhere to this same social expectation, the reason I take it seriously is not because I'm worried about getting sick, but because I don't want to get other people sick. But more importantly, I think that right now, Everyone abiding by these requests from the government, which is just an icky expression, I know, but everyone abiding by these requests from the government is the best defense against government making them no longer requests. And that's the importance here. If everyone starts saying, ah, you know what, I'm going to go and travel anyway, and I'm not going to do the 14-day isolation, which is what happened, government responds by saying, okay, your 14-day isolation is now a mandatory 14-day quarantine. 
if government says, hey, we're asking non-essential businesses to close and a bunch of businesses say, ah, it's, you know, it's fine. We're, we're just, we just want the business. Then what happens? Government says, all right, I hereby order non-essential business to close. When government says, hey, listen, don't go to kids' playgrounds, don't uh, have your kids having these outdoor playdates, and everyone says, ah, I'm going to do it anyway, what does government do? They shut down playgrounds, they shut down parks. So the reason that I think individuals should voluntarily go along with things that are not hard to go along with is so that you don't force the government's hand to making these things permanent and making them so that you can actually get slapped with a big fine like the Hamilton drug dealer did. Maybe he's not the great example that I want to hold up, but that's why you have to do this or should do it because if you don't take it seriously, the government is going to make you take it seriously. And that's a lot worse than just making sure you leave a six foot berth when you're walking down the street. I got an email from Terry though, that I I found was funny and I had to share it with you. Uh, Terry was Uh, talking about another story I told, which was when a guy in a a takeout restaurant put his hand on my shoulder. And after I had been so conscientious about social distancing, I I got kind of paranoid. He said, you think you actually really believe that a guy placing his hand on your shoulder is an OMG moment? Not helpful, Andrew, not helpful. I had a fool jump off the effing sidewalk as he approached me the other day. I laughed at him. Well played, Terry. Well played. That was me. I, and if, if I do walk towards you, Terry, and I jump out of the bushes, do say a hello, but do it from six feet away if you don't mind. We have to take another quick break here. When we come back, we'll close things out on today's episode of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. As we focused on in the earlier part of the show, the big picture of coronavirus, we'll look at some little odds and ends of the fight against this pandemic now. And in particular, this one is for all of my Turkmenistan listeners. I don't know if I have any Turkmenistan listeners. I probably have more Turkmenistan listeners than Quebec listeners, and I've also said Turkmenistan more in the last 30 seconds than I have in my entire life. But nevertheless, Turkmenistan has banned the use of the word coronavirus, so don't play this show out loud if you are in uh, Turkmenistan. i got to stop saying Turkmenistan, uh, but actually I'm really looking forward to uh, saying the name of the head of state of Turkmenistan in a moment, which I'm going to put up on the screen because I can't actually say it. But uh, Turkmenistan claims it has no coronavirus cases, but if you utter the word while waiting for the bus in, say, uh, Ashgabat, you may be arrested. The Turkmenistan government, or the Turkmen government, has banned the word. Uh, Apparently, they are a notoriously secretive and restrictive country, which I didn't know. And the head of government there, the president, who is a as described by NPR, flamboyant dentist rapper strongman named uh, Gurbanguly uh, Bertie Mukhamedov, which is actually the sound of when you're uh, gargling your toothpaste before you spit it out. Uh, Gurbanguly Bertie Mukhamedov, uh, which you can never say, uh, so it's not like Beetlejuice because you could never actually say it three times in a row without changing it. But uh, Gurbanguly Bertie Mukhamedov said that... Uh, Uh, No, I'm not having a stroke. That's his name. Uh, Said that uh, (laughs) uh, apparently you shouldn't be talking about it. Plainclothes officers are even arresting people who wear face masks or discuss the pandemic because they're trying to do the whole everything is fine thing, which works for North Korea, which apparently has no cases as well. It's easy to get your cases down to zero when you just execute anyone who coughs in public. So uh, that's what's happening here. 
But it's hard to believe, especially because Turkmenistan is immediately to the north of Iran, which was at a time the epicenter of the virus. So I don't think that Gerbil blobbity bloopy uh, necessarily wants to accept the reality that he's probably not as good at keeping it out of his borders as he thinks. And also, let's look at the thing that everyone's been talking about. I don't know if you are working at home or if you have a spouse who's working at home as well. Certainly in our home, I'm working from a home studio here. My wife is working from our new home office headquarters as well. Marriage is still going strong, which is more than can be said for China when everyone has emerged from quarantine to find that divorce lawyers are all of a sudden the hottest commodities in China. According to a story in Bloomberg Business Week, uh, everyone has been coming out of quarantine and the first thing they've done is had to go find divorce lawyers because they've realized that, you know what, when you have the pressure cooker that is, or to use the modern term, the instant pot that is home quarantine with your loved one, sometimes you realize they might not be a loved one. Now, on a sadder note, uh, incidents of domestic violence multiplied. I've heard uh, a friend of mine who runs an abused women's center here has just said that's like the heartbreaking part of this, when people are forced to share a roof with someone who is a danger to them or, or a threat to them. But uh, the aspect that people weren't surprised by that everyone joked about that now seems to be, at least in China, materializing is marital breakdown. So uh, you look at how uh, the smallest things they say, trivial matters in life led to the escalation of conflicts and poor communication has caused everyone to be disappointed in marriage and make the decision to divorce. That's from the... Uh, who uh, the Milu City Registration Center director, Yi Yan, and that's unfortunate. But the Shanghai divorce lawyer, Steve Lee, has said that a 25% increase is good for him. So uh, some industries are apparently coronavirus-proof, and this is one of them. Now, we talked on Monday's show about the foreign minister in Canada, Francois-Philippe Champagne, basically lauding China for its generosity. And in this week, still... More countries are finding that their gear from China is defective. Justin Trudeau so far has not acknowledged there as being any downside to the equipment that we've received from China. I don't know if he will admit it. He's just saying that Canada is testing it and inspecting it and hoping for the best and all that stuff. But the title of last episode was China Lied, People Died. And I do not want you to forget those four words. They're not my words. Other people have said them. But China deserves to pay. China needs to pay. And the response from Western leadership needs to be that they will make China pay. And so far, that isn't happening yet. Maybe it will when the dust settles, but that will be the next battleground once we get past the public health crisis, is are you going to hold China to account? Are you going to hold China responsible? And are you going to demand accountability, reparations, punitive measures, whatever the case may be? And to be honest, I'm not optimistic Justin Trudeau will. I've been trying to get into the Trudeau press conferences every day, and uh, I'm, they do them by teleconference if you're not in Ottawa, and, you know, I hear the same reporters asking questions every day, and they're not picking my question from the teleconference line, so I'm pretty sure that Trudeau is still like he was during the last federal election, banning True North from covering him. But the thing about it is that I would love to hear someone else. If you're a mainstream media reporter and you have access, I would love to hear someone ask Trudeau the question, do you trust China's numbers? 
That's it. Do you trust China's numbers? Because if he says no, then the question is, what are you doing about it? And if he says yes, then it gives us everything we need to know about Canada's approach to China, that despite everything that China has done, despite China having the two Michaels, despite China's export of shoddy equipment, despite China's attempt to infiltrate the Canadian government, despite China's espionage efforts, China's uh, poor human rights record, despite all of that, you're prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. So that's the question that I would love to hear Justin Trudeau answer. And it won't be me who asks it because I can't, but I'll keep trying. And I think that you should ask your local members of parliament, whatever their party is, that very question. Do you trust China's numbers? And let me know if you get a response. We've got to wrap things up for today. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. And every weekday, Candace Malcolm and I doing True North Update throughout this coronavirus pandemic. We will talk to you next time. Thank you. God bless. And good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.